0: There was an a, a book collector who hadn't seen one of his friends in a while. He ended up running into him, and and so they got to talking, and they were you know just chatting up, and and in the course of the conversation, it came out what he did, and and so the friend said, "Oh, that's that's really neat. I you know I wanted to tell you. I just actually came across. We were rummaging through." our attic of our old family home and we were rummaging through some of the old stuff and we ended up finding a big old dusty Bible in there and uh, it was old and kind of worn and I couldn't read it, it wasn't even in English. All I know is there was somebody named Guten something other who, who printed it and, and the book collector said, he just taken a back of and he said, are you, are you serious that you found a Bible printed by Gutenberg In your attic, he said. What did you do with it? Do you still have it? And he said, Well, no. I, it was old and worn, and I, you know, I couldn't read it, and so I just ended up selling it at a a garage sale for a couple of bucks. And he said, Are you you telling me you found a Gutenberg Bible in your attic and you sold it at a garage sale? for a couple of bucks. And he said, yeah, it's no big deal. He said, that Bible could have been worth millions of dollars. And the friend said, no, 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 not this one. This one had some guy named Martin Luther had scribbled all in the margins. (laughs) With all due respect to the two of them, the, the word of God's value beyond who printed it or who's, you know, notes are written in the margins and certainly the sum of of God's word is worth more than any sum of money. But in our armor up series today we come to the final lesson as we are going to look at the final piece of armor that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6 and that is the word of God and hopefully shed some light on why the word of God is so valuable. So Ephesians chapter 6 if you would turn with me there We'll read verse 10 through verse 17. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So in verse 17, Paul gives us the last piece of armor. He tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, Roman soldiers had basically two swords, typically two swords at their disposal. One was probably the sword you've more often seen a Roman soldier carrying around, and that was like a big, broad sword, right? And you would kind of flail it and and, and wail it around and, and use it to... Hack things, right? But that's not the sword that Paul was talking about here when he talks about the sword of the Spirit. The sword that Paul is talking about here is actually in the Greek word, it's it's a word called makaira. And it was really more of a dagger-like sword, about a foot and a half, maybe two feet in length, somewhere in that area. And it was mainly used for hand-to-hand combat. So if you had your shield, you had your dagger, your makaira, that you would use more in hand-to-hand Combat. And we see this sword over and over again in Scripture. In fact, it's the word for sword that you find more often than any other word for sword. Uh, For instance, it's the Machaira that when Jesus and the apostles are in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, uh, Peter takes out his Machaira and goes to presumably chop off Malchus, one of the servants that was there with the uh, soldiers who had come to arrest Jesus. Uh, Malchus ducks and Peter still gets his ear, chops it off, and if you remember, Jesus goes on to heal uh, Malchus's ear. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, we read about James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he is beheaded, which means his head was taken off, in case you don't know that term. And the sword that was used was a machira, not a big broadsword or not an axe where it, you know, or guillotine, even chopping. Uh, I don't want to get too violent here, but um, you just imagine the precision and the The um, sharpness of a sword like this. It was a machaira that they literally used to slice his head off. A couple of things about the machaira other than that. One, it was a sword of precision. So you think about a big broad sword, you think about a, you know, sword that you have to use two hands to wield around not exactly accurate in a lot of ways, unless it's a super-duper skilled soldier, but usually you're just kind of flailing and hitting whatever you can hit. This sword was meant for precision and accuracy. Uh, secondly, the other thing about the Makira, on here it's straight because you see that a lot, but actually a lot of Makiras were curved. They had a curvature to it. And the reason they did that is because when you inserted it, and again, I'm not trying to get too violent, and uh, some of the guys are like, no, keep going. Yes, we love this. Um, but when you inserted it, the, the idea was that it did more damage coming out than it did going in. Literally, it was designed to gut someone. I mean, that's what you used this Makaira for. And, and so it was a sort of precision and accuracy, and it was a, a deadly killing machine. And I tell you that, not to paint a, a violent picture, although I think that's part of it, but to make sure we get this picture in our minds. Because when Paul, filled by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes us, tells us to take up the, Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, the machaira of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he's not playing around here. Right? He's not using light and fluffy terms. He's not talking about some nerf sword or some fake sword or some like play lightsaber that we swing around, you know. He means business here. This is a sword that was a precision weapon used for cutting and killing. And that's the picture that Paul is painting here. Now, when Paul refers to the word of God being a sword, specifically being the sword of the spirit, there's a couple of different ways we can understand that phrase, of the spirit. One way is in the sense that it is a spiritual sword. And maybe you say that's kind of obvious, but it is a spiritual sword as opposed to a physical sword. God's not calling us, through Paul, is not calling us to literally carry around a physical physical sword, right? It, so the sword's nature is, although we're going to talk about obviously the word of God is physical, the sword is spiritual in nature. It, it is a spiritual sword. As Paul says in uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, the weapons we fight with, they're, they're not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so fighting a spiritual battle requires fighting with weapons that are spiritual Weapons because remember, our struggle, our battle, our fight is not against flesh and blood. Then, secondly, along those lines, this is also in your notes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is given by the Spirit and it is also used by the Spirit. And I think that's an important. Um, you know kind of qualities to understand. It's it's given by the Spirit and it is used by the Spirit. For starters, it's not the sword of you, and it's not the sword of me, it is the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of it's the, the Spirit himself who provides the word, the sword, which is the word of God. In second Timothy chapter three Paul writes, "All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." That word for "breathed" is also the word for it's translated "spirit" sometimes. So some translations may even say, uh, "Word of God is is God-spirited." It's, it's breathed along and put into motion and put into being by God's voice and God's Spirit Himself. In Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty and twenty-one, it says. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophets' own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, it's not the sword of you or me; it's the sword of the Spirit. It's given by the Spirit, and it's also used. By the Spirit. In other words, if you and I want to put ourselves in a position to be led by the spirit and for the lord to work on us and work through us and and to use us then you and I have got to put ourselves before the word of god if you and I want to be used by the spirit to be the kind of men and women that god has called us to be then we've got to put ourselves before the word of the spirit the sword of the spirit and to be used by it and taught by it the word of god is the sword of the spirit maybe you've heard someone say something along the lines well i've never heard God's Spirit speak to me. And maybe you've said something along those lines. And I get the, the thought behind that. In fact, I've even uttered similar words in my own time. But the reality is, I, while I've never heard the audible voice of God, there, there are hundreds of pages that the Spirit of God has spoken to you and me and still speaks and will continue to speak until the day that we die He is speaking, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work in and through you and me. But let's take a little closer look at what is specifically meant here by the Word of of God. Because a lot of times, when I say, or when Paul, when we read something like this, when he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, a lot of times it's very easy, and I've already kind of made you think that probably already. It's easy to think Bible, right? I'll just take up my, my Bible. I've got my Bible. And there is a certain extent to that. I mean, where do you find the you know, spoken word of God? It, it's in the Bible. That word for word, though, is, is the word Rama. by the way. It refers to the spoken word of God, not just the words that are on the page. But that word for word, if you can follow me, is, is rhema, the, the word of God, the spoken word of, of God. But here's what I want you to grab a hold of because I think this is important. Sometimes we think, well, if it's just the Bible, I'll take with me the sword of the Spirit. Satan does not shudder at you carrying around your Bible. That's all good and well. We've got shelves and shelves of Bibles. I I don't know how many I've got on my shelves and how many we've got at home. And you've probably, some of you probably have a huge Bible. There's one back in my office that's, I don't even know, it's probably about as old as Gutenberg's Bible in there. It's, It's old and, you know, it's, Really cool looking, and then I've got small Bibles that fit in my pocket, and we've got Bibles, thousand Bibles translations on your smartphone. But Satan doesn't shudder at you carrying around your Bible. You see, when you're just carrying around your Bible, basically all you're doing is carrying around your sword in its sheath. A sword that is still sheathed does no good. Good luck fighting a battle with a sword still in its sheath. You and I don't actually take the sword out of its sheath and begin to use it until we start to take it in and then ultimately to speak it out. Let me give you a couple examples. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost. And so much of his sermon, if you read through Acts chapter 2, is quoting Old Testament scripture because that was his Bible at the time. He's quoting Old, old Testament scriptures, quoting and speaking the word of God. And he gets to the end of the sermon. And in verse 36, it says, do you remember what it says, that the, the men in, who were there? you remember what it says? It says they were cut to the heart. Don't you find that phrase interesting? Why were they cut to the heart? Well, because the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's a sword; it cuts. But when were they cut to the heart? They weren't cut to the heart until the word of God was spoken, until it was preached, and then they were cut to the heart. Another example of this is Jesus in the wilderness when he's contending with the enemy for forty days, and Satan, you know, tempts Jesus. And, and you think about what Jesus did. Did Jesus throw like the whole Bible at him? Jesus just, you know, take his Old Testament, and just kind of chuck it at Satan. No, what does he do? He quotes very specific verses. Remember, the machaira was a a sort of precision and accuracy. It wasn't flailed about. We don't flail it about. Jesus quoted very specific scripture. In fact, he quoted from uh, the old, old book in the Old Testament, again, because that was his Bible, the old book of Deuteronomy, one of the first books in the Bible. He quotes a very specific verse from God's word. And so what did the quote do when Jesus quoted scripture to Satan? It, it bashed down the temptation, right? It, it completely removed. The, he 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 confronts Satan's temptation with simply a quote of God's word, a precise quote from God's word. And, and Satan tried another approach, and and that was met with scripture as well. But it, it's interesting that in Matthew chapter four, when when the first temptation that that Satan gives Jesus, Jesus answered, "It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every." Word, that word for word is rhema. There again, every spoken word I find that very interesting, not logos, but every spoken word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what we live on, and that's what we fight our battles with. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, think about this isn't it amazing that the only weapon Jesus used to defeat temptation was a weapon that you and I have at our disposal? He, he quoted scripture. He didn't, you know, have some divine messianic lightsaber out. He didn't, you know, have some kind of, you know, mystical, magical power that's only available to him. He quoted God's word, something that you and I have at our disposal. In fact, he quoted a scripture from a book that's a thousand years old at the time. Thousand, longer than, I mean, it, it's, it's so far back in the past. One of the first books of the Bible in Deuteronomy. And it worked. Do you know why? Because God's word doesn't have an expiration date. Your milk may go bad. God's word does not go bad. The meat in your refrigerator may go bad. God's word does not go bad. It is eternal. It's living and active, as Andrew read earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And and, and the Bible speaks to not only the fact that God... Created the world and created all things, but also that he sustains all things presently, as Hebrews talks about, by his powerful word. And so, the word that God spoke in Genesis chapter one, when he said, Let there be light, that's not a past word, a present word. It's an active word. Why? Because God's word has no expiration date. And the reason why there's still light today. It's not because Thomas Edison or Tesla, it's because God spoke it in the beginning, let there be light, and that word is still active and living even today. I just, I find that such powerful stuff that that Jesus quotes all the way back in Deuteronomy, it's still powerful enough to defeat the enemy in the present. And he did it with the same thing that you and I have at our disposal. And I get some of you say, well, I'm not Jesus. No, you're not. And I can't quote scripture like that. I, you know, Jesus just knew it right away. And, and I would say, one, you don't have to. But let me give a side note to that. What I've found is the more I study, the more I commit to memory. Um, if I asked you to sing a song that you probably have known for 30 or 40 years, I bet you could sing it. Uh, I bet you could think of certain plays, or I know one of the games we play in our house is quoting movies, and I guarantee you I can quote a whole bunch of movies. I bet you can do some of your own. And part of it is just us getting into the Word. But the other part I would say is you don't have to. There is something powerful about simply opening up the pages of God's Word and reading them out loud. There's something powerful about the spoken word of God. It's amazing what it can do in battle. And it's not just for for temptation and sin, but for for depression and anxiety and worry and fear and, and all of those things that we're dealing with and all of those things that are weighing heavy on us. Just speaking God's word out is powerful. That same word is what spoke the universe into existence. Why would we think it would be any less powerful to work, to work miracles and, and to work in our hearts and in our lives. And I know, you know, we're, we're probably getting into some some of us from a human perspective think well, that's just weird. And maybe it is a little bit weird at first, but it's perfectly kingdom normal. And if it's good enough for Jesus to use to, to defeat the enemy, then it certainly ought to be good enough for us to use to defeat the enemy, right? We defeat the enemy, we battle and do battle with the enemy, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let me just close this morning and give you three quick, I don't know, suggestions or ideas when it comes to us using the sword of the Spirit, taking in the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in our lives. And the first is this. I think we need to, we need to watch out for, for fake swords. I kind of alluded to this already, but you and I need to watch out for, for fake swords. There's a lot of things, some things. There's a lot of fake swords out there. In, in other areas and teachings in, in Christian circles that, you know, they, they sound good and they sound true. And in fact, they've even got bits of truth in them and we want them to be true because they usually fit with what our desires are. And they, they look good on a bumper sticker or on a greeting card, but you know what happens when you match them up and you put them side by side with the truth of scripture? They don't match up. They don't they don't hold up to the truth of Scripture because they're not they're not really the truth, at least the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You know, things like God just wants me to be happy, right? I mean, God just wants me to be happy. How many times have we said that? God wants me to be happy. Or, or, you know, you just need to follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Or everything happens for a reason, right? And they sound good and they sound true, but they don't match up with what Scripture says, the whole and the sum of Scripture. And when you and I try to build our lives on on those half-truths, and we try to help others build their lives on those half-truths, at the very least, it causes some disillusionment, which we see all over the place. And at the very worst, it leads to some horribly bad decisions and broken relationships and broken hearts and minds. Believe me, you don't want to follow your heart. All the time, Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. I, I've learned that in following my heart, sometimes that leads me away from what God desires for me to do. Uh, and believe me, everything does happen for a reason, uh, but that reason is not always God. Sometimes it's because you and I make some pretty dumb choices in our lives, right? Like we could look back, and I can say, "Yeah, everything happens for a reason," but it's probably because I did this, and it was really dumb. And, and believe me. It's not that God doesn't want you to be happy, but he's got a higher calling for your life. God desires for you to be holy. And guess what? When you live and and walk in that holiness, you find wholeness and you find happiness in him. And so fake swords won't serve you very well in battle. Sometimes fake swords don't even serve you well in fake sword fights, but much less in a real battle in a real spiritual battle. And the enemy would love for you and for me to go into battle and to help others in in their battles with fake swords, with counterfeit swords. And that's why it's so important for you and I to know the words of the Lord. If you don't know what truth is, how do you know the fake swords from the real one? And and not just some of his words, but all of his words. I I love what um, the psalmist writes in Psalm 119. All of your words, not some, not most, all of your words are true. By the way, he also says, your righteous laws are eternal. We talked about that a while ago. There's no expiration date, but all of your words are true. They're all truth. Not only are they truth, but they bring truth. And Jesus himself says, it's the truth that sets you free. All of God's words are truth. And the more we know his words, the more we recognize the fake swords. But speaking of fake swords, I, I think it's also secondly important to remember the real enemy. We've read this scripture multiple times throughout this sermon series, but Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And yet I think all too often we are most eager, and I'm I'm guilty of it too, we are most eager to pull out our swords in order to attack others or to defend and justify ourselves. When we wanna attack the, the the. actions of others, or we want to defend and justify our own actions. I, I was thinking, I, I can't think of a better example of this than the political realm, right? And I'm sure some people use it with intentions, and I'm not picking on politicians or anything like that, but you just think about when campaign season comes, what, what is politics? Suddenly, everybody gets very interested in quoting scripture so that they can either defend their own actions or they can attack the actions of others. But guess what? Politicians aren't the only ones who do it. You and I do it too. When we attack others or other churches or other people. Or, and, and I'm not saying we don't speak the truth, but we have to be careful to remember who the real enemy is. The enemy is not flesh and blood. The enemy is the enemy. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is evil. And we use the machaira to de- to defeat the enemy, not to, to tear down other people. And-, and-, and the sword of the Spirit can be a-, a dangerous thing when we use it to attack or we use it to defend our... And, and we don't use it just to attack, right? We I think about a- another half-truth. Don't judge me, right? That's one of those that we use. We like to throw that around too to defend our own actions. And, and it's quite interesting how how we we read a scripture that says our battle is not against flesh and blood, and yet we we forget who the real enemy is so often. The word of God was never meant to be weaponized against each other. It doesn't exist to advance your will. The word of God exists to advance his will. And so remember who the real enemy is. And then lastly, I, I think when it comes to taking up the sword of the spirit in our lives, I would just say this, the point is intended for me. And I, by the point, I mean the point of the sword and the point of the sword, of the spirit. So many of the spiritual battles in my life are within me. And so often it needs to be me who's on the point of the sword in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Andrew read earlier from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I'll read it again. For the word of God is alive and it's active. And here's the scary part. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There are a lot of spiritual cancers and spiritual lies and negative attitudes and ungodly passions and desires and harmful fears and worries and anxieties in my life and in your life that need to be cut out. And one of the biggest reasons why you and I need to search the Scriptures is so that the Scriptures can search us. The Word of God is living and active, and I pray that we will be a people of the Word, a people who truly desire to get in here, not just carrying our swords around in their sheaths, but actually taking it out so that we can use it to do battle against the enemy so that the Spirit can work in us and on us and through us. Because so often, the stuff that needs the sword... And the battles in my life is not simply in other people. It's in you and it's in me. I need to get the point, not just you. I want to close with a story. Many of you are probably big C.S. Lewis fans. I I, I love C.S. Lewis. I remember reading Chronicles of Narnia when I was younger. And in his book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he tells the story, if you're familiar with that book about a boy named Eustace. Eustace is, uh, I was reading one critique of Eustace. It said, Eustace is the boy you love to hate. I think that's probably true. He's selfish. He's just not, he, he's not kind. Um, he only thinks about himself. And so Eustace uh, ends up, as he tells, I won't go into all the details, but Eustace ends up coming across this cave and this dragon and he watches the dragon die and then he ends up going in the cave and what he finds is just this huge treasure trove, right? And so Eustace goes in there and in the process of trying to figure out how he's going to get this treasure because he wants to keep it all to himself. He doesn't want anyone else to have it. Uh, he, he, He is trying to figure out how can I get this treasure back to the ship without anyone else figuring out, and in the process of that, he falls asleep on the treasure, and when he wakes up, he has turned into a dragon himself, and a very unhappy dragon at that, I might add, for a couple of different reasons. One, because he's a dragon and he does not want to be a dragon, but also because there's a gold band that he has put on, and in the process of him becoming a dragon, it is starting to constrict his leg, his dragon leg, and become very, very painful and excruciating. So one night in the midst of his pain and his frustration, Eustace encounters a huge lion. Now, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, then you know that lion is uh, none other than Aslan. And Aslan doesn't really speak to him as Eustace describes it, but he beckons him to basically follow him up this this mountain, and at the top of the mountain, they find this garden, and in the middle of the garden is this well. And when Eustace sees the well, he longs to to get in just to ease the pain that he's experiencing. And before he gets in, though, Eustace feels Aslan telling him that he must undress first. And and Eustace thinks to himself, you know, basically like silly lion that doesn't make any sense. Lion or dragons don't have clothes. And then it occurs to him that dragons do, though, shed their skin like a, a snake does. And so Eustace begins to scratch at his skin and the layers come off. And soon his whole skin peels away and, and, and he goes to get in the water. But when he goes to get into the water, he notices that a new layer is, is still there. And so he, he tries to keep scratching it off. And with each new layer, he only reveals a deeper layer and a darker layer and a more knobbly layer. Than before, And finally, Aslan says to him, you have to let me undress you. And, and it's here that I'll just read Eustace's version of the story. He says, I was afraid of its claws. I can tell you, but I, I was pretty nearly desperate now. I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I would thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass. "'only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. "'And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. "'Then he caught hold of me. "'I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, "'and he threw me into the water. "'It smarted like anything, but only for a moment, "'and after that it became perfectly delicious.' And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my limb. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. I think all of us are a little like Eustace. We need to have the dragon layers cut away. And we need to be thrown into the water. And that's why every day of our lives, until the day you and I die or Jesus returns, we need the word of God at work in our lives. We need the sword of the spirit so that we might be what God has made us to be in the first place. You and I have been created in the image of God, not of a dragon. But I will tell you that most spiritual warfare comes down to a question, in whose image am I going to be made in? In whose image am I going to live in? Am I going to live in the image of the God that has created me and created me in his image, or am I going to live in the image of a dragon? And I'm here to tell you that you were not created to be in the image of a dragon. But you gotta let the lion do his work. And when you let him do his work, you'll find that he'll make you into what you were made to be all along.